Good evening and welcome. It's KVC Arts, arts and entertainment, as well as the people and places providing it. I'm David Fleming. Tonight's program is in conversation with Mike Brewer and revolves around a documentary just out, Brewer and Shipley, One Took Over the Line and Still Smokin'. It was released rather purposefully on 420 and is available through Vimeo On Demand. Later in the program, we'll hear about how and when the song came about, this and much more, of course, but in the meantime, if you're not familiar with the tune, we're going into the program with a version of the song that nobody that was familiar with it expected. From the Lawrence Welk Show. Thank you very much. Now, here's an attractive couple, Gail Farrell from Durand, Oklahoma, Dick Dale from Algona, Iowa. Excuse me. Let's listen to Gail and Dale and one of the newer songs. One toke over the line, sweet Jesus, one toke over the line. Sitting downtown in a railway station, one toke over the line. Waiting for the train that goes home, sweet Mary, hoping that the train is on time. Sitting downtown in a railway station, one toke over the line. Who do you love? I hope it's me. I've been changing, as you can plainly see. I felt the joy and I learned about the pain that my mama said. If I should choose to make a part of me, would surely strike me dead. And now I'm one toke over the line, sweet Jesus, one toke over the line. Sitting downtown in a railway station, one toke over the line. Waiting for the train that goes home, sweet Mary, hoping that the train is on time. Sitting downtown in a railway station, one toke over the line. One toke over the line, sweet Jesus, one toke over the line. Sitting downtown in a railway station, one toke over the line. Don't you know that we're waiting for the train that goes home, sweet Mary? Hoping that the train is on time Sitting downtown in a railway station One took over the line Don't you know that we're a Sitting downtown in a railway station One took, one took over the line And there you heard a modern spiritual by Gail and Dale a Modern Spiritual by Gale and Tail. That was from the Lawrence Welk Show of all places. I'm David Fleming, now joined by Mike Brewer, half of the duo Brewer and Shipley, who originally gave us one toke over the line. Now, Mike, I have to explain that not only is KVCR an NPR radio station, but also a bit of an anomaly in that we are a PBS TV channel as well. And with that, a certain Lawrence Welk connection, so it was just too perfect to go into this show with Lawrence Welk take on one toke perfect. over the line. Perfect. Yeah. Oh, my God. Okay, a modern-day spiritual. When it's and how? Oh, yeah, we will come back to, you know, the documentary and more on this song later on, but just having led into it with this, what were the circumstances of you and Tom having heard that one toke over the line was on the Lawrence Welk show? Tom and I had nothing to do with Lawrence Welk <laughs> playing One Talk Over the Line. In fact, we were in London at the time, and if it hadn't been for my mother actually seeing the program, mm. 
I wouldn't even have believed it. I mean, Lawrence Welk <laughs> wasn't talking seriously. But in 32 years later, we got a copy of it and put it on YouTube for the world to see, and now I think it's well over a million hits. It's pretty funny. If anybody hasn't seen it, they should go to YouTube and check out Token with Lawrence Welk. Yes. Yeah, yes. he referred to it as a modern-day spiritual, even. Didn't have a clue. Must be the sweet Jesus line, I guess. It would have to be. And then beyond the chorus, there's the, who do you love? I think it's me. This is almost, it's this close to being as pure as Afternoon Delight. That kind of a misconstrued yeah. song, uh, once again. Well, you know what? I, I understand that uh, One Took was even in a hymnal in Georgia way back when. Oh, good God. Wow. Yeah, no kidding. No yeah. kidding. It's amazing what people read into things. Oh, yeah. I wonder if we could tie that into I Don't Want to Die in Georgia. So on April 20th, 420, we had a new documentary, Brewer and Shipley, One Toke Over the Line, 50 Years and Still Smoking. This is available on Vimeo On Demand. Now, this was produced by Kathy Corley with Full Circle Productions, and I'm curious how this even came to be, first of all. Were you contacted by them or you put it together? Tom Shipley got into videography himself several years ago and worked for years at the University of Missouri Science and Technology, and he would be sent around the world actually shooting videos for the university and engineers and doctors without borders and stuff like that. Mm. And also locally, he did a lot of things about the Ozarks, and uh, that's how he met Kathy Corley on a project. They became friends, and at some point she said, you know, there's way more to Brewer Shipley music than one toke over the line. You guys have written scores of songs and recorded them. You know, we have like, I don't know, 10 or 12 albums. And there's just way more to Brewer Shipley music than one toke. And people need to know that. Would you be opposed to me doing a documentary about you guys? And he said, of course not. You know, and he called me and I said, well, absolutely, you know, go for it. So she started working on it. And uh, gosh, she's been working on it literally for years when she's had the opportunity to do so. And it finally got completed. And now it's on Vimeo On Demand. How long was this in the making? I mean, you said years. I Are think we nine years. Nine I years. Think nine years off and on, yeah. She followed us around the country from time to time, videotaping our concerts. And when she couldn't make it, she would get some satellite photographer to go in and shoot footage of us and the fans and signing autographs and, you know, and interviewing people. And she's interviewed, gosh, countless people, band members and former record producers and so forth. Anyways, yeah, it's a feature length, hour and a half or so. And actually, I haven't even seen the entire thing. I've seen bits and pieces of it, versions of it, over the years when she would send me a link to check things out. There would be things added and deleted and, and whatever. So I haven't actually even seen the finished product and still haven't, and I'm really <laughs> looking forward to doing that. So who was it? Was it Full Circle Productions or was it you guys? Who was saying, okay, man, let's do this on 420, okay? I think that was kind of a common <laughs> thought, you know, our manager and Kathy and Tom and I, you know, sure. how appropriate, you know, yeah. release it on 420, right. perfect. Right. You had to have been yeah. going down the rabbit hole in a severe way and looking at, oh, old photos, maybe old Super 8 reels, you know, who knows what. Oh, yeah. Tom and I both, and my brother, and, you know, both of my brothers and various people submitted old Super 8 stuff and photos and everything. So, yeah, it was a rabbit hole for sure. Did they, beyond interviewing, say, contacting folks from the association or or whomever, I just pulled that one out, but was it then also a series of you and Tom sitting down and asking questions and then maybe even, I don't know, old journal entries, revisiting liner notes from 1971? No, it was really just Kathy interviewing us. In fact, early on, gosh, years ago, she interviewed me and Tom both separately. 
And then later on, we decided, you know, we really need to be interviewed together because yeah. we can have more thoughts, you know, more things to add, which we did. So you can literally see us age <laughs> during the documentary. <laughs> Funny how that happens. Yeah, yeah. Well, there's proof. Okay. You mentioned her filming some of these recent concert performances. That's something that I have to highly recommend, by the way, for folks to uh, track down on YouTube. Not just the songs, not just Tarkio and all that, which, by the way, is a new favorite album, I have to say, of mine. It's, you know, maybe uh, 50 years later, but still. With the live performances, one of the great things about this, if folks can check it out on YouTube, but when you perform... One Toke Over the Line, or when you perform Witchy Tide, when you perform these, you're not just performing the songs, but you're also telling the stories about them. And that's one of the great things about my viewing of a performance, and I suppose what this very show is, is getting the reasons behind the music and why and what happened with that. But Yeah, that's what all of our fans have always thought, too. They like the stories and how songs came about and back pages and stuff like that. Well, you know, Tom and I came from the folk era. Yes. And uh, so there was a lot of patter on stage, you know, and, and telling stories about how songs came about. Because folk music is history, you know. I mean, good grief, there was a time in history when traveling minstrels traveled the country and, you know, finding out what's going on here and there and writing songs about them. And that's how people found out what was going on in the county next door or the state next door. So we've coming from the folk era, it just kind of came naturally to yes. us, along with our social commentary, you know. I can't even call them protest songs just socio-political, spiritual, whatever commentary, which we've always been very much... Well, you said Tarkio, you know, there's a whole lot of that in, in that pertaining Absolutely. to Nixon and the Vietnam War and civil rights movements and so forth. Going through some of these interviews, can you think of a memory, just as we are sitting here now, can you think of a memory that someone else prompted, something that you're glad that you remember now that you wouldn't have had it not been for this documentary? I really can't think of anything okay. right offhand, to be honest with you. Okay, well, that's fair, and that's an added point. <laughs> but then, you know, if, if short-term memory isn't yeah. what it used to be. Either, yeah. All if right. it wasn't for acid flashbacks, I'd have no memory at all. <laughs> at least that's in color. Okay. So this is a Vimeo On Demand release. Do you know if there are plans for a hard copy DVD? Oh. Yes, there will be DVDs and Blu-ray and things, because a lot of people especially our older fans, you know, they want to have hard copy backup, you know, oh, yes. they have them stream it. Because your computer doesn't always work. That's right. You may have noticed. That's right. And I'm also very uh, much a tactile person. I do, maybe it's clear by now, I read the liner notes. I appreciate the album or the CD, being able to look at the pictures and read who played bass and find out that, hey, Ray Brown played with you guys as well, or Jerry Bergen did this or that with you guys or whatever. Yeah, you know, absolutely. So. That's what I miss about LPs. Yes. Because they were more, there's way more than just the music, you know. You could open them up and read the liner notes and the lyrics and more pictures and whatever. I missed that a lot. Sometimes even a fold-out poster in an actual poster size. Yeah, it's just absolutely. beautiful. Yeah. yeah. Well, some of your history, you grew up in a musical family. I mean, this isn't something that happened much later for you. I was. I grew up in a musical family. I have two brothers and a sister. Our mother was a music teacher out of the home and uh, the organist in the church, and my dad was in the choir, and my dad also played some piano and and was also a, an artist, you know, not professionally, but just he was talented, you know, he was an mm-hmm. oil painter oh, nice. and uh, illustrator. And so, yeah, we grew up sitting around the piano and singing songs and learning songs, and Mom taught all of us, you know, a little bit of piano to begin with, and uh, she used to get so angry because <laughs> she'd be standing behind me 
and I'd be playing something flawlessly, and then she'd realize that I wasn't even looking at the music. <laughs> I still don't read or write music. Oh. I, I play it once and remember how it goes, and and that's just that's how it is with me. My brother Keith, on the other hand, he's a multi-instrumentalist, plays many instruments, and he can read and write music. And My youngest brother, Tim, he's like me. He likes playing guitar and writing songs and stuff, but he doesn't read or write. I'm glad you said multi-instrumentalist because although, you know, of course we think of you and Tom as both singer, songwriter, guitar players, but I just saw a talk that you were giving for, maybe it was the Ozark Music Society or something like that. I saw this talk that you were giving and I believe this is where I just found out you are just the right age to have been turned on to Little Richard and Elvis and all this. You know, so many people say, oh, when they saw the Beatles play on Ed Sullivan, but you are just the right age for rock and roll as it was happening. You were interested in drums at that point, right? Yeah. Well, like I said, any instrument that any of us kids Uh, wanted to play, if we were serious about it, our parents always made sure that we had one. And it wasn't always easy for them because, you know, my dad worked for the Postal Service and and Mm. mom was a music teacher out of the home, so a whole lot of money wasn't coming into our household. So I really appreciate that, that they did that. And yeah, I was interested in the drums. My mom got tired of me beating on the walls <laughs> and the door jams as I walked through. Stuff. So she got me a trap set and I started playing drums. In fact, the only actual music lessons I've ever had was drums. Yeah, also, I, yeah, I was playing drums in the first band I was ever in in high school. Our guitar player was Jesse Ed Davis. We graduated high school together. And after high school, I didn't see him again for years and years. Of course, I knew he'd gone to play with everybody from Dylan to the Beatles and Taj Mahal and everything. And then one day at Capitol Records in Hollywood, I was getting on an elevator, and there he was getting off an elevator. Mm -hmm. So we visited for a little bit, and we were working on, I even forget which album we were working on. I said, hey, man, would you come in and play on a couple of tunes? He said, I'd be happy to. So we've got Jesse to add to our roster of great musicians we've played with. I tell you, we've been really lucky to have worked with so many excellent musicians, starting with our first album down in L.A., The Wrecking Crew. Yes. We recorded half of that album at Leon Russell's home studio up in the Hollywood Hills, and he played all the keyboard. And, yeah, it's just continued on. You know, we've really been lucky to have gotten to work with so many really talented musicians. Wow. We've crossed paths with a a lot of musicians on tour and stuff over the years, too. You're listening to KVC Arts on 91.9 KVCR, streaming at kvcrnews.org. I'm David Fleming. Tonight's show is in conversation with Mike Brewer, half of the duo Brewer and Shipley. We are talking about the documentary just out, Brewer and Shipley, One Took Over the Line and Still Smoking. That's available through Vimeo On Demand. More at brewerandshipley.com. Now, while Brewer and Shipley are a folk group and still performing today, Brewer started off interested more in rock. He was at just the right age. Now, later in the program, we'll hear about how and when One Took Over the Line was conceived and how it came to be performed and recorded, neither of which was ever initially intended. Do you recall what it was that got you away from rock and then it was folk, this is what I want to do? Do you know who it was? Was it a Pete Seeger thing or what got you into that? It was a combination. Music was changing, you know. I mean, it went from rockabilly and then early rock and roll and, you know, I was just blown away. Nobody nobody had ever heard anything like it. Hmm. And I loved it, but then it started changing, you know. Elvis went into the Army and started making stupid movies and recording (laughs) some songs and stuff. And the hits weren't Chuck Berry anymore or sure, okay. Little Richard or whatever. And I was losing interest in what was popular at the time and folk mm, okay. music just came along. I was still in high school. My brother Keith was already playing guitar so I started teaching myself some chords on the guitar 
And I was fortunate to have some coffee houses. I grew up in Oklahoma City, and there were a few coffee houses there. One of them was called The Web. It was operated by a guy who was the curator of the Oklahoma State Museum, Penfield Cowan. And, uh, gosh, I just knew a very few songs, you know, what I thought was folk music. They call the wind Mariah, you know, or, or whatever. And I knew a few chords strumming with my thumb. And he let me get up anytime I wanted to and eventually paid me five bucks Whoa. to get up and play. So, man, I was a professional folk singer. And then I, I got better, and I was a local on a couple of local TV shows also. I'd get out of school even to go do a midday. And then I got good enough, I would go to a place called the Buddha. There was a whole circuit of folk rooms across the country, and the Buddha was one of the main ones in the Southwest. So all kinds of artists from East Coast, West Coast, and in between would play the Buddha. And I was just captivated by the music. I'd never heard music like that before, you know, and artists like that. And I saw a whole lot of people before they went on to become famous at the Buddha. And eventually I got good enough to open for people at the Budai. In fact, mm. I ended up for about a year being the house opening act, so I got to see everybody who played the Budai, and it was just a great experience. The whole folk era was just a magical time for me, and, and Tom Shipley and a whole lot of other people. And then I started traveling the circuit. You know, I would meet people who would turn me on to clubs elsewhere, send a demo tape or whatever, or just drive to Cleveland or someplace, you know, and open mic night and end up getting hired to come back and actually play the clubs and get paid to do it. So I was a professional folk singer traveling the circuit, just like Tom was. That's beautiful. First time I, ever, I think it's in the documentary. The first time I've ever laid eyes on him was I saw his picture on a dressing room wall in Dayton, Ohio, <laughs> at a club called The Lemon Tree. So anyway, yeah, we got to meet and became friends. And years later, you know, who would have guessed? We got together and started writing songs. And it wasn't any plan of ours, but we were just songwriters, you know, who just were enjoying writing songs together. and We became Brewer and Shipley. Way cool. Well, you had your first couple of albums in L.A., well, down in L.A. We mentioned that earlier, I believe, and also Weeds. But then I heard, as one of you said on one of your recent concerts, you were telling a story, and this is just a beautiful quote. I had to pause it and write it down. It took three months to save up enough money to move to L.A. and then three years to, quote, get the hell out. That's exactly <laughs> right. <laughs> You guys well, it's ended like up... the Eagles, you know. You can check out any time you like, but you can never leave. Yeah. Actually, uh, we recorded down in L.A., in L.A., but our Weeds album was recorded in San Francisco a couple of years later. Okay, okay. Well, then you guys... we recorded five albums at Wally Hodder's in San Francisco. Oh, wow. Okay, I didn't know it was that many. Yeah. We left L.A., and if you didn't live in L.A. or San Francisco or New York or Nashville at the time, they didn't think you were in the business. You know, today you can phone in your part, you can live anywhere you want, you know, you can record at home. People win Grammys now from stuff they recorded at home. Yeah. Not even a recording studio. So we ended up going to the East Coast and got a deal with Buddha Records. And this is when FM radio was brand new. Underground radio was called. Mm. And the last thing you would hear would be somebody's hit single. You know, it was all about album cuts and sometimes even play whole albums. And we were definitely album artists. And Neil Bogart at Buddha Records was known as the Bubblegum King. He remembers songs like Yummy, 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 I Got Love. Yeah, right, right. And he was wanting to shatter that image because of the times they were (laughs) changing. And we were album artists, and that's what he was looking for, so that's why he signed us. And then we ended up working with Nick Gravenitis from the Paul Butterfield Blues Band, had been with Mm -hmm. Paul Butterfield and and Mark Nafflin. They were all living in the Bay Area at that time, Michael Bloomfield. 
So here are a couple of folkies from the Midwest <laughs> getting together with a bunch of hardcore bluesers from Chicago wow. <laughs> transported to the Bay Area. And we kind of created a hybrid sound. It was all part of the beginning of folk rock, really. You know, we were mm-hmm. part, not certainly not alone, but a whole lot of other people coming up with new stuff. And that's when artists were writing their own songs, because before that, few people did. Yes. On a song called Oh Mommy, I Ain't No Commie. Yes. That's the one we actually named Richard Nixon. Yes. By name. <laughs> but he had just started playing pedal steel. Oh. And, uh, we wanted it. It was a kind of a country parody song. So we went down and said, Jerry, you want to feel like playing pedal steel on something? Sure. Mm-hmm. And I'd known Jerry for a long time anyway. I'd known him since before the Grateful Dead. Mm. Yeah, so he brought his pedal steel up and set it up and Went through it a couple of times, and there he is to this day on that song. I had had that one put aside to mention, not just because it's a fun song. I mean, well, Oh Mommy, I Ain't No Commie. You kind of (laughs) had me there, and you sort of have to listen to the rest of it after that. But then, of course, yeah, the fact that you had Jerry Garcia in there, I guess this would have been even pre-Warlock's days, just when he was a San Francisco banjo picker, I suppose. Absolutely, yeah. Everybody was folkies. First time I met Yorma Kalkinen, he was a mm. folk singer. Okay. First time I met Paul Kantner, he was a banjo player. In a <laughs> I have a picture of him, Polaroid, someplace in Venice Beach, California, with horn rim glasses, a white button-down collar shirt, and a flat-top haircut. No way. Oh, my God. <laughs> yeah. Put that yeah. in a time Everybody. capsule somewhere. Oh, my God. Yeah, well, Yorma, you know, has his own yeah. Fur Piece Ranch now in Ohio, a great music camp, and uh, he told us that None of them in the airplane had even ever touched an electric guitar until they decided to form a band. Oh, wow. Wow. Yeah, they never even touched one. <laughs> oh, my God. Wow. Yeah. That's something that will make a person go back and listen with a different ear now to yeah, some of their early... Yeah, absolutely. Wow. Yeah. First time I met David Freiberg, he was mm-hmm. at the Budai, the club I mentioned earlier. He was in a folk duo called David and Michaela. And, in fact, I gave him a ride from Denver... San Francisco, first time I was ever in San Francisco, and he introduced me to Yorma Kalkinen. Of course, David went on to be with Quicksilver Messenger Service and then Jefferson Starship yeah, yeah. and everybody else. Oh, yeah. 
So many of these, that's one of the things that I truly, truly love and appreciate, I will honestly say, about doing these interviews. I'm in a very fortunate position to find out about, you know, through, say, Jock Bartley with Linda Ronstadt uh, being found by Chris Hillman at this little club, you know, whatever, all this kind of stuff. I just love how it all comes together. And then then we get Stone Pony, then the Eagles. And so there's just this flow and evolution, if you will. Yeah, um, first time I met David Crosby was at yeah, a folk room in Omaha, Nebraska. <laughs> wow. His brother was backing him up on upright bass. Do you know who Fred Neal was? No, no, I don't know that one. Fred Neal wrote the song Everybody's Talking. That's oh, wow, well, yeah, okay, like, okay. But he was a folk god. He may be the inventor of folk rock. He's the first folky I ever knew who ended up playing some electric guitar. He played a 12-string usually. And good grief, everybody from Stephen Stills early, early on to John Sebastian, a lot of people worked with him. And wow. he was just great. He had this great baritone voice. He lived in Florida. Anyway, David Crosby wanted to be Fred Neal. <laughs> His whole set was Fred Neal songs. He, he dressed like him. He was a 12-string guitar, just like Fred Neal. Wow. So, yeah, there, a lot of people were influenced by Fred Neal, including myself. And then we got Graham Parsons, and then that vision yeah. changed. So, okay. Yeah. Wow. You mentioned Tarkio a bit ago. And this came from, you guys ended up settling back in Missouri at some point. And Tarkio, this comes from a regular gig that you played in Missouri. Yeah, well, long story short, is what we talked about earlier, we just, it wasn't our cup of tea mm-hmm. in L.A. LA. We were sick of, yeah, the smog, and that's why we named the album Down in L.A. And we just, just were fed up with the whole scene, the smog, and the cops were like stormtroopers, mm. you know, Charlie Manson thing happened, and it was oh, just, sure. you know, just got to get out of here. So we did it the hard way after we finished our album. We hit the road with just a couple of gigs booked. The first one was in Tulsa, Oklahoma, hmm. and they canceled on us when we got there because we looked like hippies, and they were <laughs> the clientele would beat us up. So we didn't know where we were going, but we got a call from the Bitter End people in New York wanting to know if we wanted to do some college shows in Wisconsin, which we did. Tom had ended up going back to Ohio, hanging out with his folks, and I was staying in Oklahoma City with my family. So I flew to Cleveland, and we hooked up and got in his Volvo, his <laughs> old Volvo. We made it about 70 miles towards Wisconsin, and the engine blew up. <laughs> we had to call his dad to come and rescue us, which was a little embarrassing because his dad wasn't really sure he wanted his son to be a musician instead of a marine <laughs> biologist or something at the time. So anyway, we ended up traveling by Greyhound bus all over the state of Wisconsin. It was in it was school time, so it was winter time. And it was just a weird experience. I mean, like, for instance, this one show in Menominee, Wisconsin. We should have got there late and didn't get a sound check. So we go on stage, and these are just like little coffee house kind of, you know, one of those rooms, you know. Sure. Folding chairs and stuff like that. And we got on stage, and we were looking around for the microphones. They had one lapel microphone. Oh, no. That was it. Oh. For two guys. And 300 feet of cable running down to the public address system, you know, the little... (laughs) circular things in the ceiling that was the PA <laughs> well fortunately we were going to be there a couple of days there was some college students in a band a rock and roll band called the tongue and they <laughs> loaned us their PA system saved our butts and we became good friends they ended up following us all over from gig to gig actually we still stay in touch with them but anyway it was a very interesting tour but while we were on that tour we got a call from friends in Kansas City there was a club called the Vanguard that Tom and I both had played as solos and actually, while uh, we were still in L.A., we flew back one time to play over Christmas and New Year's, and Steve Martin was oh, our opening act. Oh, cool. He flew out from L.A. He was still working at Disneyland at the time. <laughs> so uh, we became good friends. 
But anyway, we got a call from our friends in Kansas City saying they wanted to start a company, but they needed somebody with a record, which we just happened to have. And they were saying, are you guys interested in you know coming to KC and helping us do this? So we sure as heck didn't have anything else going on. We said, sure, why not? And we always liked Kansas City a lot anyway. I had good friends there. So we went to Kansas City and started a company called Good Karma Productions. Mm. And it was all, you know, very 60s, late 60s, you know, just a handshake, no contracts and mm-hmm. all that. And we ended up playing every high school and junior college and college that existed at the time all over, not just around the Kansas City area, but, I mean, good grief, multiple states, Nebraska, Wisconsin, Kansas, Iowa. Wow. And Tarkio, I'm finally getting around to answering your question. <laughs> Tarkio was a little town way up north Missouri, almost to Iowa. And there was a college there, Tarkio College. And we ended up playing there several times. And the main highway at the time to go up into Iowa and Nebraska and everything from Kansas City is now an interstate highway. But at the time, it was just Highway 29. I mean, just like a two-lane. So we traveled it so often, we nicknamed it Tarkio Road. And that's how that came about. The album is Tarkio. The song is Tarkio Road. There's some lines in there that are just there's funny lines, like trying to set the road on fire, but my bike won't go any faster. Okay, so that's <laughs> yeah. that's just funny right there. But then there's things like maybe the cops pulling you over, something about looking in the drum and under the hood. Was this one of those situations also of, you know, as you're going from one state to the next, there are always these certain places where you're worried about getting pulled over? Uh, oh, absolutely, yeah. because we, we glowed in the dark compared to everybody else. <laughs> You know, nobody in that part of the world were wearing crazy colored bell-bottom pants and Nehru shirts and beads and so mm. forth. And not to mention long hair. This, of course, when we had hair. But, uh, right. Yeah, I don't know. We got hassled a lot. We had to pick and choose where we would stop to get something to eat or try to, you know, without being turned away. Or to check into a motel or even getting gas. Yeah, people wanted to hurt us. Jeez. And here we are, just peaceniks. We weren't going to hurt anybody. But they didn't like our points of view. That's the ultimate irony of that line of thinking, I suppose. Yeah. Against that Unfortunately, sort of it still exists. Very unfortunate. You're listening to KVC Arts on 91.9 KVCR, streaming live at kvcrnews.org. I'm David Fleming. Tonight's show is in conversation with Mike Brewer. There's a new documentary out called Brewer and Shipley, One Toke Over the Line and Still Smokin'. That's available through Vimeo On Demand. More at brewerandshipley.com. Now, up in just a bit, we'll hear about the song Wichita Toe, one of their biggies, although first, the biggie, the one for which they're most well-known, the one mentioned in the documentary title, One Toke Over the Line. Strike me dead and now I'm one toe over the line, sweet Jesus. 
showing off a smile. I met all the girls and I loved myself a few. And to my surprise, like everything else that I've been through, it opened up my eyes. And now I'm one toe over the line, sweet Jesus, one toe over the line. Sitting downtown in a railway station, one toe over the line. Don't you know I'm just waiting for the train that goes home, sweet Mary? Hope I'm at the train is on time. One Toke Over the Line. Also on Tarkio, this is, of course, where the biggest one, One Toke Over the Line, came out. I do want to hit on a few other songs, but this one, we can't ignore this one. This one reached the top ten, but then at the same time, or almost right after, it started getting banned at so many radio stations. You had a nice honor from Vice President Spiru Agnew. He referred to Brewer and Shipley as being subversive to American youth. So, again, this is one of those things, when and how. I'd love to hear about the time where you just spat out your coffee because you just read this note or just heard this on the news like you were, you know, most wanted. Today, on stage, we like to apologize to our audience (laughs) for sending them in the wrong direction back in their youth. (laughs) Controversial, such such dangerous guys. We apologize to (laughs) But anyway, yeah you got to remember, this is when Nixon had the FCC threatening radio stations with their licenses. Mm. If they played anything but might be drug-related, at all drug-referenced. And it was just ridiculous to us. It was the equivalent of burning books. I mean, Puff the Magic Dragon was on that list. That's how silly it all was. And I remember having a meeting with the CEO of WLS in Chicago, a huge radio station. And they were saying, you know, we want to play this. We really like it. We want to play it. But only if you guys are on board, you know, backing us up. We said, well, absolutely. Yeah. So they kept playing it, and then numerous other stations went ahead and said, screw you, FCC, and went ahead and took their chances and played it anyway. And a lot of people really liked the song and requested it, so people kept playing it. But, yeah, it was banned in a lot of places, and a lot of stations were afraid of the FCC, their threats, and wouldn't play it. And, in fact, when we played London, it never got airplay in London because mm. of the controversy over here. When we played London or all over England, we were on Top of the Pops, which is a huge television show over there, and we couldn't even do one tuck. We had to pick another song. They picked it for us, actually. They picked a song called People Love Each Other from our Weeds album. Oh, how sweet. And we had to go into a recording studio with Southern Comfort. Remember that band at all? The band called Southern Comfort. I think they lived there. I don't know why they were doing there. But we had to go into this. To us, was just like this retro 
recording studio, four-track machine, <laughs> and everybody just had baffles between us. We all recorded it live, and, man, they even had it right down to one of the instruments on People Love Each Other. It was a jawbone, I mean, a real actual... An actual... Uh, oh. Jawbone with loose teeth in it, a percussion instrument. <laughs> and they even had that, and we recorded People Love Each Other, and we were blown away. I mean, the VU meters on the machines and everything went up and down. It was so retro. Yeah. And it really gave me a whole lot of respect for all everything the Beatles recorded on four-track. Wow. And combining wow. things. It was amazing. But anyway, yeah. And then we went and did the BBC, and by union laws, Southern Comfort had to be on camera with us. But we, it was pre-recorded, so the only thing live were our vocals. Everything else, we were just pretending to play along. And, of course, as TV would have it, all they had to do was mix my vocal and Tom's. Well, you couldn't hear Tom. Uh-huh. <laughs> it's just the way it always goes. It's unbelievable. But, yeah, it was, uh, we had to do a different song because uh, One Toke was banned in England. They wouldn't play it. With regard to One Toke, one, people can read this somewhere easily enough, but I'd love to hear you telling it, and that is how this song even be. You guys had no intention of recording it, but then came that second encore at Carnegie Hall, yeah. of all places. Yeah, well, we got to tell the story a million times. It's just the truth. We're, once again, the Vanguard Coffee House. This is, of course, after we had, were living in Kansas City. We were playing the Vanguard a lot, and it was like, you know, four sets a night, and we were out getting ready to go on for our last set, and a friend came by, and we stepped out back. I think it was some Lebanese hash, actually, but uh, <laughs> we got back in the dressing room tuning up, and Tom says, man, I'm a one toke over the line. And I just cracked up and started singing, one toke <laughs> over the line, sweet Jesus. And the next day we got together and said, you know, what was that we were messing around with last night? And in about an hour we turned it into a song, and we literally did write it just entertaining ourselves and to make our friends laugh. And hadn't even thought about recording it until we played Carnegie Hall the first time, opening for Melanie, and uh, went over really well. Got a few encores, ran out of songs, so we decided, well, let's do one toke. So we did, and that's when Neil Bogart from Buddha Records was there, and he came backstage and said, "Oh man, you got to record that, add it to the album." We were working on our Tarkio album, so we were kind of surprised by that, but we did. We added it to the album, and then took a break and went down to Florida to do some fishing, and came back to. Uh, find out we were in big trouble when they released it. <laughs> There's one other thing about this, and if you could explain the significance of hitting the symbol at this one particular edit point. Yeah. Well, if they were going to release it as a single, in those days, a single couldn't be longer than three minutes and ten seconds long. And one toke had a third verse that made it well over that length. So we had to edit it. And that was a challenge because... You know, today, digitally, you just punch a button and it's done. But in those days, we literally had to put chalk on the master tape yeah. and cut it with a razor blade and hope you got it right. Because if you didn't, we would have had to re-record the entire song. But they got it right, and everybody was heaved a big sigh of relief over that. But because there had been a third verse and the song built and built to a higher volume and whatever... Yes. You could hear it jump. You, know, you could hear the overall level and energy and everything jump, but you could still hear a tiny little click where the edit was, so we overdubbed a cymbal splash on that spot so you couldn't hear the click. So you didn't cut out a later verse. You cut out one of the middle ones. Uh, yeah, it was a third verse, actually. Okay, okay. Three verses. Okay. That's Run why up. that cymbal splash is there. That's... Cover up the edit. <laughs>
There is one more thing. You guys did redo One Took Over the Line. That is, you joined the Rainmakers for the Hempelation 2 CD. I've forgotten all about that. Yeah, and this was a more of a rockin' version, but you guys did contribute vocals. What portion of it was you and Tom, and, and how did that really work? The Rainmakers were friends of ours, Kansas City group. Oh, okay. And they recorded it, and then we just came in and overdubbed our vocals. Okay, simple as that. That's why it rocks more, because they were playing it. Okay, okay. And you guys just provided backgrounds on the Wahoo. Yeah, yeah, they wanted us to be a part of it. We said, absolutely be happy to. So we came in and sang on it. Fantastic. We still have a few more minutes left. I do want to hear also about Wichita Tope. This is funny. I'll tell you from my end of things. I expected to finally have access to this story, man, about, you know, learning this song from the Native American jazz saxophonist Jim Pepper. But but no, you guys you guys just picked it up from the radio. I mean, you liked this song on the radio and learned it? It's really as simple oh, as that. Oh, it just blew us away every time we heard it. They didn't play it that often, but we loved it. There was a station out of Little Rock, Arkansas, still is, a show called Beaker Street. And it was hosted by a DJ named Clyde Clifford. I think he's maybe still living. And this thing had a huge output. I mean, you could hear it clearly in multiple, multiple states. We're a long way from Arkansas. And when we were traveling the heartland at nighttime, going from school to school, we would listen to Beaker Street because it was, you know, it was FM radio. 
album cuts and stuff, music he normally wasn't played on the radio. And Jim Pepper had a band called Everything Is Everything. And as you said, he was a jazz saxophonist from the Portland area. And we just loved it. It just blew us away. And he, he's the one who took a, an ancient, like an 800-year-old peyote chant and put it to music. So yeah, we learned it off the radio. And years later, we realized that we got the indigenous people's part right, but we were singing the English part wrong. <laughs> <laughs> and we still do. It's actually, what a spirit. Feel it springing around my head. It makes me feel glad I'm not dead. And we always sang, what a feeling spring is bringing around my head. But who, who cares? <laughs> That's just a great way to wrap. That's a fun note to leave it on, and we'll give you a few minutes before <laughs> yeah. your next interview. Actually, I have one more today, and then about 20 tomorrow, I think. Oh, good God. Yeah, this has been like a three-day thing. I've done this for years and years at 420 time. Our managers lined up countless radio stations all across the country in a 15-minute interview. You know, just to remind people of one toe, because everybody plays one toke on 420. Sure, and of course. Along with a you know, brief interview or whatever. I got tired of doing it a few years ago, so I kind of just didn't do it anymore. But this year I volunteered to do it because it's a documentary. I wanted people to know about it. All right, Michael, again, thank you so much for your time, and have a great day, I hope. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate you giving me your time, man. I really, really do appreciate it a lot. Thank you so much. That was Mike Brewer, who, along with Tom Shipley, make up the duo Brewer and Shipley. Once again, the documentary Brewer and Shipley, One Toke Over the Line and Still Smoking is just out, released on April 20th, 420 if you must, and is available through Vimeo On Demand. More at brewerandshipley.com. And that wraps up another edition of KVC Arts. Thanks again to Mike Brewer, and here at KVCR, thanks to Lillian Vasquez, Rick Dulock, and Shireen Awad. Many past shows can be found through iTunes, Spotify, and NPR One. And most past shows are at kvcrnews.org slash arts. I'm David Fleming. Thanks especially to you for listening and for your support. And again, you can give any time of the year. You don't have to wait for the membership campaigns. Just go to kvcrnews.org support. And thanks again.